Quang. Let's do it. Quang. Right. <laughs> As Quang. business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult WH. for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even it's though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to All take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support for people like Baby, you, we're able to continue this? doing this. Please consider Quang. joining our <laughs> Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. We are twelve years old. We're gonna we're gonna get real. I'm stomping all over this intro, and I'm just gonna make it weird for JPink. JPink, that's me Return, doing that. A week for everybody at home listening. Podcast in covering news from the agriculture industry. So so you're you're fine. You're a robot anyway. So <laughs> yikes! <laughs> it happens. Uh, what? <laughs> Welcome to Burn and Return. Uh, screw your intro. Uh, you, no one, no one gets an intro this week because, well, because we said so. That's exactly why. That's uh, why. for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, welcome aboard the uh, the Soul Train. Uh, we are three uh, turf grass dudes from different segments of the industry that have three wildly different businesses that come together twice a week to talk about the various things that are going on in the industry. Sometimes we just take calls from, from people that are out there and have questions. Sometimes uh, we like to talk about the news and specifically on, on uh, we, well, we record this on Sunday and it doesn't get released till a little bit later, but specifically on these nights, uh, we, we like to talk about things that are going on in the news. And then we have a little fun segment that we call Joe Knows Turf, where we talk about some things that we find online chronically online if you're driver and uh and that means it doesn't <laughs> exist in some instances but it actually does exist and uh and so we just pretend like it doesn't by calling it chronically online but then deal with the reality of it live while we're on air because we can um like i said my name is matt uh my handle is the grass factor we have demay the osu turf man and then green doc down below who's uh who's ray and, uh, you know, we got Ohio, Hawaii, and Tennessee coming at you in the house. Uh, and I'll <laughs> say this, too, just because I'm supposed to do this more frequently than I do. Um, if, you're, if you're watching this on YouTube and you run a business and you're out there on your spray truck and you want to be hands-free, uh, check it out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever your favorite podcast app is. We throw them up there to all of them. Uh, I think even on like iHeartRadio and all that bullshit. So if you need to be hands-free and you just want to throw it in your ears and listen to whatever it is uh, we've we've got to say, because I, I promise you that there are some diamonds in the rough. There's going to be a lot of rough to wade through because, well, if if you're a lawn care guy, you understand that 99% of this business is rough. And uh, and you just you need a gag. You need something to laugh at. You need a fucking turkey call in your ear every now and then. Can we get one more, J-Pink? <laughs> yep. See, you just need one of those from time to time. Uh, and then behind the soundboard there is our amazing producer. That is uh, that is Jay Pink. He's the one that keeps the the gears greased and uh, and the and the and the mute button ready to go just in case we have uh, a horrifically uh, dirty joke or uh, you know I make a comment about being a redneck and then uh, some uh, a liberal male calls me a racist because I refer to myself a redneck and so we have to keep the dump button ready to go. 
It's happened more than once. That's all I'm going to say. It continues to happen. <laughs> Be careful saying that because you sound really racist. I'm like, do I? Do I? I don't believe you. I think you're lying. I think you have an inferiority complex is what's really going on. And, and, and by the way, Matt. Don't be mad at me because I'm a big ass southern boy. And besides that, who is actually the redneck? Yeah, that's right. It's Ray. The Asian guy on the show is the biggest redneck of them all on here. And so it doesn't even matter. We're here to build up every stereotype you thought you had and then tear it all to shreds. We have the meth, the meth the cooking down. chemist uh, who, who produces fertilizer these days. And then uh, we, we have the, the G-man turned private uh, a consultant contractor <laughs> in the top right corner. And then we've got Ray, the, uh, the, the redneck uh, Asian guy that does a really, really fucking crazy shit on residential lawns that 99.99999% of the world doesn't do. And uh, so that's, that's, that's why we come together and we have a good time on here. <laughs> Uh, so, like I said, this is uh, newsworthy type of entertainment, I reckon. And so uh, we'll go ahead and kick this off with this week's headlines. Nothing to fear here. This is just the this is just the news, and there is nothing to fear here. Just kidding. We will be covering the things that you should be afraid of and maybe some things that will leave you feeling a bit more optimistic because we're going to have a little one-two punch here, right? So uh, the, the, the first part of the, uh, of the headlines here is that we're going to be talking about biosolids, and we're going to talk about uh, what is seen as an improvement to biosolids, and then we're going to talk about an underlying yet-to-be-addressed issue uh, with biosalads that's beginning to be talked about more and more and more and more and more. And so while we continue to put more and more lipstick in cer certain parts of the country on, uh, well, you know, uh, biosalads, uh, in other parts of the country, uh, you know, people are putting a high beam halogen uh, bulb flashlight on it and, uh, and just, and, you know, trying to expose what lies within the shadows. So, Here's, here's how this first one starts here. Fertilizer improvement bill emerges from committee smelling like a rose. That's funny. It's not funny. Bordofpolitics.com. <laughs> That's not funny at all. Uh, nice try there, though, West Wolf. I'm sure that you have... Uh, uh, really good grades at journalism school. <laughs> I was going to say you had something just dripping off your chin at all times, but I it was not. <laughs> Jesus. I, never mind. HB 14. Oh, thanks, Jay Pink. Uh, creates a biosolids grant program within the Department of Environmental Production. Uh, when treating wastewater, you're left with solids and treated liquid. Call those solids what you like, but legislation passing a House subcommittee this week would encourage wastewater treatment entities to refine these solids into a better quality fertilizer. You have class AA, A, and B biosolids with a bill laid out to encourage more facilities to generate class AA uh, biosolids. Uh, Florida's Clean Waterway Act states that legislator finds that it is in the best interest of the state to minimize migration of nutrients and impair uh, water bodies, uh, said uh, Kaylee Tuck. Uh, while this act has substantially strengthened permitted requirements for Class B biosolids, it does not specifically provide targeted protections for Florida's already impaired waterways. Class B biosolids have a significant amount of toxic metal Metals and can attract rodents, flies, mosquitoes, and other organisms capable of uh, transporting infectious agents. The state tracks land applications of Class B biosolids, but the state doesn't do the same for Class AA biosolids, which raise concerns among environmental advocates. 
Uh, because Class AA biosolids are likely ending up on fields, they argue there's a need to know what effect that fertilizer is having on the water. The bill creates a biosolids grant program in the DEP, the Department of Environmental Protection, which the department can provide grants to counties and municipalities to purchase or upgrade what they need in order to have facilities that can convert wastewater residuals into Class AA biosolids, along with encouraging applicants to enter public-private uh, partnerships. HB 1405 prohibits DEP from authorizing application site permits for Class B biosolids within the sub-watershed of upstream sub-watershed of certain impaired water bodies unless the applicant can prove it wouldn't increase the nutrient load in that watershed. Uh, Lindsey Cross, I inquired as to whether Tuck knew of any such instances. We modeled this language after a South Florida local ordinance that was passed in 2013. Since then, we haven't seen any permits that affect or apply to this. At least one-third of the grant program fund would be uh, for projects that convert wastewater into composted Class AA biosolids that meet a certain standard of full stabilization. Another third would go to projects that convert residuals into both Class AA biosolids and ammonia-nitrogen solution. Uh, at least 10% of funds would go to uh, projects in rural areas of opportunity. So, uh, in, in effect, when you uh, are producing biosolids, you're, you're going to get different grades of biosolids, right? Depending on how much processing you want to put into it. Uh, you have just the the uh, the digested bugs that are killed, uh, and then it's just sold as basically like a compost of sorts. Uh, and then it can go through a cleaning and uh, granulation process, which is where you're starting to get into like malorganite and stuff. And and typically you'll see those as Class A exceptional quality biosolids. And now there's a Class AA where you know they they have to meet certain uh, uh, restrictions on. Uh, heavy metals, right? So you have to be below certain uh, thresholds for, for heavy metals in order to eat that class AA exceptional quality biosolid, right? So in effect, they're allocating grant money to convert more of this. Then the second piece of this is that for class B biosolids, because they are um, shittier than class A and AA, <laughs> is that you have, to track, you have to track which fields they're applied to. So what they're doing is that they're taking this a step further and uh, and saying what we're even going to do is restrict which sites can even be permitted uh, for application of Class B biosolids unless we can we can prove that it would not increase the nutrient load in that sub watershed. So, um, but and and you know, good news, bad news is is good news is that we are producing a a better quality product that is going to be lower in. Uh, in overall he heavy metals with class AA biosolid production. But there is the uh, lurking in the shadows, some other things that are going on. And we'll we'll get to that here in a second. Boys, I want to ask you real quick, um, and, and let me ask you this. Do you think this is a positive in the first step uh, towards uh, shining the realities on biosolids, or are we still sweeping the big underlying problem under the rug and pretending like it doesn't exist by at least just upgrading this one facet of it until we can figure out what to do with the overall issue of it in general. I think it's way more of column B than column A, right? I mean, yeah, there's no way, nothing in here in which people are acknowledging the not, not only the downstream effects, a pun not intended, but also too, uh, what what's known at least in the early and infantile stages of uh the contamination that these substances might have, right? So, I, here's the thing: is like uh you have a lot of this stuff, that, Matt, right? That people are still trying to get away. It's still a waste stream product. It still has to go somewhere, 
So, Ray, I'm going to ask you, if it doesn't end up as some sort of uh, fertilizer substrate, right, as like, you know, uh, something gets bulked with something else, right, or become part of uh, just a land uh, subsurface application, what do you do with this stuff? Very simple. You incinerate it, and then you vitrify it so that it does not stand a chance of leaching or contaminating anything because, you know, with biosolids, I'm thinking about what could possibly be in biosolids from the metals. And then we talked a lot about the so-called forever chemicals and pharmaceuticals that end up in biosolids that, you know, when I was listening to Matt talk about what they're monitoring, at no time did they mention PFAS or pharmaceuticals. And that to me is actually like the elephant in the room that is not really being addressed by this particular piece of legislation. Because yes, you can legislate for lead and mercury and cadmium and copper and zinc, etc. But what's typically present in biosolids in, with greater frequency is PFAS and pharmaceuticals. And I think that those substances, to me, are actually more significant than, say, some lead or mercury. What a great and segue into our next article, right, Matt? <laughs> it is. It is. And I'm going to start off this next article by saying is that uh, the USGS um, I, I study this, which is the United States Geological Survey uh, dot, dot gov. Um, was measuring using simulating uh, uh, simulated uh, uh, rainfall for land applied biosolids and the uh, potential downstream effects of, on aquatic organisms, and and basically the, one of the things they came away with was um, uh, es es estrogens, uh, progestins, and androgens were seen at a markedly increased amount. Uh, with with samples <laughs> taken one eight and thirty five days after biosolid applications, right? And uh, and so in, anyway, the the point is is that there is that now also in the news, and this is what's really dominating the headlines. That's and I, I bring that up to say is that this is one piece that's making it in the news, but there's also another piece too. And so that is you know you could check that out usgs.gov, uh, and then on this side that's now making it into our news cycle pretty aggressively. Uh, because I guess from 2012, that isn't sexy anymore. Uh, the Deer Island wastewater treatment plant is a pollution success story. Over the last several decades, it transformed uh, Boston Harbor from a nationally embarrassing cesspool into a swimmable bay. Uh, the treatment plant takes everything the people of the greater Boston send down their sinks, toilets, showers, washing machines, plus industrial waste and treats it. The treated water is clean enough to let out into the ocean. The remaining sludge gets recycled into fertilizer that's used in nearly 20 states. But now that fertilizer is raising fresh concerns. Oh, boy, the puns in this are just awful. Um, the, uh, that's because the wastewater treatment plants like Deer Island were not built to handle the toxic forever chemicals known as PFAS. Uh, the treatment process concentrates PFAS chemicals in the sludge and therefore in the fertilizer, leading environmentalists and public health advocates to call for an immediate end to its use. Uh-oh. Others are not so sure that a full ban on sludge-based fertilizer or biosolids is the answer, but there is a widespread agreement that we have only begun to grasp the extent of the problem. I think we're only starting to discover how important biosolids are as a source of PFAS contamination. 
Uh, and this is from Heidi Pickard, who is a Harvard doctoral student who is analyzing soil and corn from farms contaminated by sludge-based fertilizer. Most states have not even begun to test to see if biosolids that have been applied to land are contaminated or if that soil is contaminated. Uh, I think if they go and look, they're going to discover that is a huge contamination issue everywhere. Uh, 43 communities, about a third of the people in Massachusetts, send their wastewater to Deer Island. Industrial and household waste, storm water, the liquid that uh, leaks from landfills and the slop pumped out of septic tanks, it's all tunneled to, pl- uh, to the plant with its iconic egg-shaped tanks. On average, the plant receives and treats more than 330 million gallons of wastewater each day, making it the second largest treat plant, uh, treatment plant in the country by volume. Because thousands of consumers of industrial products from waterproof cosmetics to toilet paper to firefighting foam contain PFAS, the wastewater coming into Deer Island, like wastewater everywhere, is contaminated with these chemicals. What gets into wastewater is just about everything that we use in our society because it's the pollution sink for what's out there, which is a big deal when we're talking about PFAS. So and I'm, I'm going to shorten this to say that you can go through and read it yourself, but I'm going to shorten this to say is that when you are doing your wastewater treatment facility, right, you are... You are the highest volume of ingredients that are coming through there is just going to be water, right? And there's going to be various things that are either suspended or dissolved in this water. And through the treatment process, you're removing those things. Since it's all diluted through water as its carrier, you are effectively concentrating everything else that's in it, right? Whether it be heavy metals, um, whether it be hormones, whether it be PFAS, all of that is going through a concentration process as it's extracted from the water so the water can be recycled and reused or pumped into the ocean, whatever it needs to be, as long as it meets that, that classification You know, once it leaves the, uh, the wastewater treatment facility. So what's happening now is that the light is beginning to shine on the fact that PFAS are coming out of wastewater treatment facilities, not in the wastewater so to speak, but it's actually in the biosolids that are coming from it. And then those biosolids are then spread on the fields that grow uh, everything from animal feed to our feed to uh, whatever the case may be. And then that in turn gets recycled back into the population where we're eating animals that have consumed this and so on and so forth. And, you know, where does it end? Where does it begin? And how do you go about uh, fighting it? The, the point is, is that, um, you know, here, uh, uh, it looks like Boston is saying that they are ready to do whatever it takes, but the point is, is that no one is really sure what it's going to take yet. Uh, yeah. there have been a couple different processes that have been developed as far as treating it, but as far as implementing them at scale with reliability, with uh, cost feasibility has not been able to be done yet, yet. So that is the positive news on the horizon. Uh, and I, I, I'm curious, what's y'all's take on this? And then more so, are you hearing anything locally yet? I'll say this. What I'm hearing locally is crickets. Same. Sure. I, I, sure. Same here. And I think it's going to be that whole thing where it'll get a, a ton of play on the coasts, right? Uh, east and west and middle of the country. You're not going to hear a whole lot about it until, you know, either, you know, it was recent that, uh, EPA proposed new rules for drinking water standards, right? To have uh, PFAS limits on that, like almost lower than what's detectable currently, right? With the with the technology and the machinery we have for that. So that all being said, it's the it's the whole velocity of change argument thing. What do we do with this stuff? For years and years and years, we've just pumped it back into you know, either, uh, you know, fertilizer blenders, we've put it in, you know, with in-ground applications, we've done a variety of different things with it, balked it with compost, right, uh, to get rid of it. And 
it's been a suitable source because it's you know as long as you can control for the heavy metals and you know meet the epa standards as far as those goes uh or, or those elements go then you know you're fine uh, there's so much more that we don't know and and how quickly that changes uh, i i think it's going to be i'll tell you what folks i think what's going to really be interesting is um you know where the epa drives it on this because I, and i'm not saying it's right or wrong i mean it, this isn't a good idea uh you know as far as having uh no standards around this when we know it's a problem and that's not what I'm advocating for. I'm not, I don't think anybody on this panel is going to sit here and say that, hey, we should just continue to use this stuff willy-nilly. I think we've all been pretty ardent in our uh, our uh, support of saying, folks, hey, just just don't use this stuff anymore. You know, don't put it in your programs, uh, especially if you're in the lawn care side of things. But we know that it's still happening. And, uh, you know, as far as what you do with it and how you do with it, I think you have to vote with your wallet. So if there's anything I can say for the people that listen to this show is, just plan on not being there, right? You, you've got other choices out there in the marketplace that are just fine. They're going to still provide you uh, the same level of uh, turf performance uh, and, and anything else that you can imagine that this is doing for you. I think the only thing that you might not like a little bit different is the price point. You know, it might go up a little bit in price in terms of your price per bag, but uh, to not have this in there and not have it, you know, the rug pulled out from Time's maybe at some point in the future, probably worth it. There you go. Time's up. It's over. What do you think, Ray? Yeah, and PFOS is just one thing, but again, where are the standards for the various pharmaceuticals? Because let me think about the persistent uh, pharmaceuticals like the fluorinated antibiotics, the fluorinated psychotropics such as fluoxetine uh and then what do we think about the highly stable and bioavailable hormones like the uh orally available progestins and estrogens because you know when your lady takes her birth control pill guess what happens when she goes to the bathroom Hmm? Here's what happens. Uh, well, urinalizing it. Yeah, yeah. It's all going back out into this uh, biosolid uh, waste stream. And the thing that keeps on coming up in the news is how over the last, I want to say 50 years, they say that men's hormone levels have been changing and not necessarily in the positive way and this just so happens to coincide with the rise of the readily available and commonly employed uh, female birth control which is orally available estrogens and progestins and so i have to wonder now are those pills or the contents of those pills somehow getting back to us? I mean, are they somehow circulating back to us? And you know, when I say the dose makes the poison met, I also think about length of exposure as a component of that dose. In other words, 
Sure. You're fine if you're exposed to a little bit of this extremely occasionally. However, what happens if you are exposed to an otherwise small quantity daily and maybe even several times a day? What happens then? Right? I mean, that's different. So I think we need to just look at exactly what's in a ton of even that so-called class AA biosolids. What's in it? It checks off for lead, checks off for mercury, checks off for cadmium. Cool. But then, come on, what else is in it that has a potential health effect? I mean, let's be a little more, I guess, thoughtful and mindful and not just look at one thing, but then not look at the other things that could potentially have a negative effect. <laughs> yeah. You know, without a doubt. Yeah. Let, let's. In, I was just going to say that until at some point, this is going to have to be addressed uh, in more ways than one. Right. And, and we've said it before. And the easy thing that you can do is go to your, uh, uh, fertilizer supplier, and if they are pitching you biosolids, ask to see a PFAS report on the biosolids that are in the bags that you're selling you, right? That is mm -hmm. the, the the easiest, quickest thing you can do. And then if, you know, again, correlation does not equal causation, but it does, I, I think it warrants discussion. And I think it warrants someone to study and, and give you a, a real answer is that if you look at testosterone levels, from the, the 1930s to now, uh, uh, taken into account the same ages, it, it's 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 crazy. And it, and then if you also look at uh, infertility rates among men, uh, it, from that that same age span, it's just it is a very very sharp decline that's taking place, and that that's a problem. And and what is is causing that problem? You know, I don't know. And it, is it biosolids? I have no idea. I have no idea. This is so far outside of my yeah. wheelhouse. I have no idea. But yeah. I, the point I, I, is, is that if we know it's being passed on in biosolids, again, USGS uh, is one who conducted that. So this is a government agency that is that is doing this and uh, uh, published it in 2012. Then um, who knows at that point, can we not get testing to be able to say that uh, it, 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 whether it's enough to influence men's health and women's health uh, or not, uh, because because in, infertility and uh, malaise and everything that goes along with with uh, whacked out hormone levels is is a big bad. That's not a little bit bad. That's big bad, Matt. And there's one more little thing to make note of is that in the last fifty years, girls have been going into puberty earlier, which is than previously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you see, when, when a young lady goes into puberty, that is, to me, the surge of estrogens and progestins, you know, kicking in. Whereas for the, the boys, the opposite happens, you know, either delayed or non-existent. And so... There is something going, going on that is not exactly studied. And 
this has like large effects on i guess the survival of the human race even because yeah i mean you have girls that are you know going to puberty at age 12 but then or or sooner but then you have the the boys that never go into puberty i mean my goodness how are we going to you know maintain human population at that oh point. <laughs> come on ray we all know that children are a bane on the climate and uh and everyone should stop having children <laughs> uh anyway we'll go ahead and move on that is my signal for shut the fuck up matt you're gonna get us banned uh a one billion dollar richland fertilizer plant will need the power of a hundred and thirty two thousand homes where will it come from how about this let's give you a big giant blank answer of well somewhere <laughs> uh, because that's exactly the information that atlas uh, agro shared uh with the economic development plan in uh, richland washington when they were talking about building their 100 percent green carbon emission free uh ammonianization plant uh and uh, and so basically what these folks do is is legitimately pretty cool um i was looking up their process here i've got a and uh, and so they claim that they're going to use renewable energy production. Uh, part of it is going to go towards the electrolysis of water, right? So when you uh, when you put water through electrolysis, you are splitting the H two O molecule right into hydrogen gas and oxygen. Uh, the excess of renewable energy production they're going to sell back to the public grid. But if we know they need the power of one hundred thirty two thousand homes, where's that energy going to come from? It's probably not all going to come from renewable energy. I promise you that. We're talking about lots and lots and lots of megawatts that we are not getting from renewable energy right now. So we'll just go ahead and mark that part out as probably not accurate. But the electrolysis <laughs> of water to hydrogen is accurate, right? Then uh, mm -hmm. it's going to go from there, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, the hydrogen is going to join forces with an air separation unit, right? So if we think about what makes up our atmosphere, uh, we have uh, nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide, and the majority of the air we breathe is made up of nitrogen, interestingly, right? Well, uh, ammonia is NH3, meaning nitrogen and hydrogen, right? One molecule of, of uh, one atom of nitrogen and three, uh, three atoms of, of hydrogen. So you take those two and then you combine them in an ammonia plant, right? Well, that's a pretty energy intensive pro uh, process, uh, you know, not too far from good old Haber Bosch there that we're dealing with. Um, and so then you have ammonia, which is going to go to a, um, a, a, a nitric acid plant, right? So ammonia is NH3, but nitric acid is HNO3, right? So basically we're going to tie mm -hmm. some oxygen back into there and oxidize that ammonia back to a nitric acid and combine that with ammonia. And uh, ammonia plus nitric acid is an acid base reaction and the, and the product of that, the byproduct of that re of, uh, uh, the product of that acid-base reaction is ammonium nitrate. So that is how they plan on doing that. But again, the question is, is how in the fuck are we going to power this damn thing? This is a $1.1 billion project, and it needs 350 megawatts, which is enough to power the city, the entire city, three times over. And uh, And what they said is that, yeah, we got some real cool ideas on how we're going to do that. One of them is going to be an X energy advanced reactor at the end of the decade. <laughs> uh, who? <laughs> you know, an yeah. X energy. Well, it's an advanced. Eh, 
It's going to be cool. It's a <laughs> nuclear reactor, and it's really cool, and uh, and it's going to be targeted, and it's going to be able to help us with this. Okay, yeah, that well, that that's what they're saying at the end of the decade. You know, so we're we're 2023. At the end of the decade. That's the end of the decade. I don't know. Wow. It sounds like up until then, uh, they're 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 going to have to be buying power, right? So they're going to be purchasing and- power on the open market, and uh, and then because you are using. Um, uh, you're using such a high, high amount of energy. They're going to be paying a pretty <laughs> expensive premium on this. How this works out financially is beyond I could ever, ever figure out. Um, That's but they did get a pretty sweet deal on their 150 acres, and then the 260 acres <laughs> with the port and all that. So maybe, and then they've got they got rail cars, uh, rail access too. And, you know, of course, they're going to bring a thousand jobs, which is always a big plus. But again, it sounds like this thing is going to be in for a monumental loss over the next 10 years. And then as soon as they can get tied over to um, uh, nuclear, then they'll be able to turn a profit of sorts. Right. Or they're just going to produce uh, fertilizer. It's going to be so expensive that it's going to be extremely difficult to sell. So I don't I don't know how this is going to work out, but it's it should be interesting. Say the least. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, uh, go ahead. Okay, my question is: is is there ever going to be another nuclear plant? Because that's in Washington, right, Matt? Yes, and, and apparently there nu- are nuclear plants in Washington operating yeah, right there now. There are, there are. But then, getting a new one online, good luck, because you see. All those previous plants were basically legacy plants from Hanford. And if you talk to somebody from Washington, Oregon, or Idaho about Hanford, it's as if you said a dirty word. Because Hanford was the original nuclear site that supplied the Manhattan Project. And for those of you that don't know, the Manhattan Project was the race to create the first nuclear weapon. So it's kind of a you know sensitive subject. And of course, my other question is, barring the, you know, getting power from a nuclear plant, where the hell are we going to get that much electricity from? Because this process that these people are talking about is a far departure from the old Haber-Bosch process because I'm also familiar with an alternate means of making nitric acid. And do you know what that alternate means is, Matt? What's that? You pass atmospheric air through a high-voltage plasma, and that high-voltage plasma then forces the nitrogen and the oxygen to combine in the air to form what's called NO2, and that NO2 is then reacted with water to create your nitric acid as fast as you can bubble 
air through the water. However, that process needs a shit ton of electricity because you're essentially pushing air through a high voltage arc. Yeah. I, and this is pro probably what they're doing, right? And uh, and that's probably why they need the the you know. And the the here's the deal is that the the nuclear reactor out there right now caps large users at ten megawatts because they're oh, they're running shit. out of capacity, and these yeah. people need three hundred fifty megawatts. That's thirty five x what is available from the nuclear reactor as a large user, and it's capped at ten, right? And they're thirty five x that so. I don't know how this ends up being uh, being brought to uh, fruition, but uh, boy, I can't wait to keep an eye on this because it should be a doozy. Um, all that out of the way, uh, let's go ahead and dive on into what <laughs> you may take us into this week's, you know, the deal. Joe <laughs> <laughs> knows tough. Yeah. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm gonna give you nice to meet a you. bunch of accurate facts today because Joe knows turns. <laughs> well, you know, for those of you that don't get to see Matt in, in his full glory uh, in our after shows, and again, uh, the only way to see that is uh, by accessing our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash burn and return and uh in our after shows one of my very favorite things to do is to really put a gauge and try to calibrate my mind around what max level of anxiety is and i want to backstop that all by saying that in many of these cases where there's an anxiety riddled uh episode for matt a lot of times it's not because he hates these people. It's because actually he loves these people and wants to help them. And I think that will probably be the case here. And I did also <laughs> want to throw, uh, throw a shout out to our friends at Acme Mowing. Uh, I don't know if they're our friends or not. I'm just going to say friends. Uh, I have no problem with them. It'll be, but uh, we did uh, put up their video about the whole mixing and loading thing uh, here a couple weeks back on our most recent burn and return episode. Uh, they took that video down and they responded in kind saying that they've kind of cleaned up some of their practices and some other things. So hopefully, and it, it hopefully, happens. look, tell you, look, I'm preaching to the choir here. A lot of times why this shit makes me mad is because I've made these mistakes. Learn from my mistakes. Okay. I've done, I've done and, more. I told the story of shitting myself after taking Simazine right to the fucking grill at 160 PSI. <laughs> so listen. I want to I want to I want to say a few things here. One, uh, we've had people that we have called out, if you want to use that term, on our show before. Had great conversations yeah. with them, built good relationship with them. There's at least seven, eight, maybe nine of them that I can think about in the two year history of this show that we've called on here. And the second thing I'll say is that if we're if we're saying something or anything like that, it's because we love this industry. We love everything it's given us. We're grateful for it. And if anything else, we want to see it, you know, go the right direction. Okay, so if you don't like it, if you don't like some criticism, sorry, but that's what we're here to do. Okay, and we're not above it either. We've fucked up a lot of shit. So, with that being said, Matt, the goal in this whole uh, this this episode of Jonah's Turf is I would like you to just sit and watch this video in its entirety. Okay, mm -hmm. and we're we'll we'll watch it too. Some of us have seen it, some of us hasn't, 
and uh, I will kind of stop a couple of times along the way, but I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to keep a tally mark, you know, uh, of, of things that you're just like nails on the chalkboard. It really bugs the shit out of you. And then we'll talk about it when it's all said and done. I just want to stop every now and again to give our audio only users uh, or, or uh, listeners a, uh, a set the scene kind of moment. Okay. So let's go ahead and start that video, Jay Pink, and uh, you keep the tally marks going here. All right, we are looking at, uh, this is uh, the Lawn Barber Lawn and Landscaping LLC, his YouTube channel, and the title of this video is, What is Aeration, and Why Should You Request This Service? Question mark. All right, let's see what the uh, Lawn Barber has to say. So aeration, what is it? What is aeration? What's everybody crazy about it for? At least the people that know about it. Well, aeration needs to be done in the springtime. It needs to be done when it's about, um, you know, 60, 70 degrees. I mean, you can do it when it's 50. So you can also throw an application down to whatever your yard may need. So this yard here, I mean, it's got a lot of clover. Um, it's got a pretty full, healthy grass in the back because it holds a lot of water in the backyard. Um, in the front yard as well it's looking good just need a little bit of weed control but uh, aeration is um, one of those things where you have you know you have this machine over here obviously with the spoons on it and it digs holes in the ground or should I say not digs punctures little holes in the ground so what it does is it gives the lawn respiration so that it can breathe and the roots can get its nutrients because you know when the soil is very compacted the grass don't grow a lot of people don't understand that because um, they're not educated and that's why i'm here explaining so it's like if you put yourself in a room with no oxygen you can't breathe right so i mean it's the same thing with with the grass you got to open it up so i guess you could say the dirt would be kind of like the the lungs for the grass like it so its roots can just you know fully breathe so um but yeah Pause. we're gonna get out. no all right let it go so, is, so listen i just want to set the stage for our our audio only oh, okay. people here all right so uh our, our friend here i don't know his name uh is at a house uh it would appear that he's not he has not been there before uh this lawn is hit it is in rough shape uh there's not a whole lot of desirable vegetation there uh quite a bit of weeds uh it's a you know a, a, a nice just looks like a four or five year old house uh newer neighborhood got a got a ben c class sitting out the driveway but uh the lawn looks more like a prius that needs a new set of batteries from 20 years ago it's it's pretty rough all right let's go <laughs> on here get an application down uh i'm here to uh, put down some some bonus s some pretty good stuff um it's a weed huh? and feed i've used it before in another video in my personal home so check it out <laughs> all right so now we're aerating the lawn aerating the back lawn the back lawn looks comparatively worse than the front the front's not good okay so he's we're aerating the lawn all right that's where we're at matt keep living stay alive with us don't die out of here
bearing down on the All right, still aerating the lawn. Going over it twice, it looks like. Perpendicular direction. Really getting after it here in the back lawn. A lot of clover. Um, so I'm going to show you. You know, you see the plugs? They come up out of the ground. Some of them are kind of plugs. Some of them are kind of dirt. I think that, There's a plug I think that is centipede. So we created many holes in the ground here so that you know get it ready for an application of weed and feed you know something along those lines so let me go a little detail about what is aeration all right so we got the bonus s southern weed and feed we're gonna break it out and get it ready and one of those spreaders over there i think i might pause use... okay so setting the stage here uh we're getting ready we're getting ready to Put some uh, weed and feed out, and what is shown here on the driveway would be a big box store version of a Scott's drop spreader and a Scott's big box version of a rotary or broadcast spreader. All right, go ahead and play it. My edge guard, because this one, typically the Turf Builder Classic Drop, usually for like really big properties, and this property is probably around a quarter of an acre, so this would be <laughs> ideal. And we have enough product where we could probably fill it up to probably not, not even halfway, probably a quarter of the way and get through this whole yard. And this one has an edge guard on it, so it won't shoot in the flower beds. And uh, yeah, the flower beds over here looking a little rough. I like to shoot it in there, the, the product, but I don't want to take a chance on killing the plants. So <laughs> let's just focus on the grass. That's what uh, he asked me to do here at his house. Just focus on the grass. Now we could probably throw it in there because there's no flowers in there. We can just throw the weed and feed everywhere. So yeah. The last thing you gotta do is water it. This is very important so that the <laughs> the lawn. Pause. I do have to say this at this juncture, real quick. So uh, he's he's fertilized the one side of the house, gone into some of the 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 flower beds that don't have any desirable plant material in them. Now now, now a couple of times, yeah, a couple of times. Uh, and also, can you can you back up just a second, Jay Pink? Like go back ten seconds and play this and then stop it one more time for me. Okay, right, wait. So the last thing you gotta do is water it. This is very important. Pause. Now listen, when we first watched this, I swore to God that this guy was just taking a whiz on the lawn. And I, I'm, I'm not saying it to make fun of him, but that's just where my mind went, okay? I, I just have <laughs> to say that I'm not into water sports, I'm not into the yellow discipline, but that's just where it went, okay? I gotta say that. All right, he is actually using a hose. So let's go, yeah. Go ahead. 
so that the the lawn and the soil absorbs this and by doing that you wet it don't saturate it just get it moist just enough to where it's um you know absorbing into the ground so yeah if you like this video make sure you like subscribe follow whatever platform this video is on and thanks for watching i really appreciate it see you in the next one take care god bless okay matt <laughs> where do you want to start and if you I, wanted to back I, up at any point and watch rewatch how many how I many was, did you have i was what, doing was a good job of taking notes here <laughs> from from starting <laughs> off and then the last thing i wrote was two past question mark question mark and it, and after that it just devolved so rapidly i Ugh. i was confused okay first things first the first thing I, I i wrote was just some notes that that he said was uh aeration and and i'm i'm always and this is me playing semantics and i'll be very uh transparent about that he said a lawn needs an aeration okay yeah i i disagree then the second thing is going to be that a lawn needs aeration at a certain temperature all right yeah it's also going to be a hard disagree there's 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 a lot of nuance there that uh is being wildly overlooked uh because again it, it just it is so variable that it's it's an impossible thing to state uh then you know of course aeration punctures holes has spoons and increases respiration again playing semantics here um <laughs> re respiration through through uh airification I, no who, who <laughs> demay give me give me a, a 10 second explanation of what respiration is respiration is how a plant consumes the sugars that are stored in the roots to produce energy okay so um anyway it does not apply in this scenario via hole punk puncturing in the in the ground um and then we started to go on to say that grass don't grow because the ground is hard and uh and that it is time's up it's over that's a stretch uh grass don't get oxygen won't grow was the next note i took and uh and i i might be paraphrasing what he said but he did say that and then he correlated it to uh you know like if humans don't get uh oxygen then you know we die which is the same thing as like grass not getting oxygen and then it dies because you know they're not photosynthetic or anything uh and then dirt in in turn is like lungs for the grass and and, and so you know it gives the roots the abil ability to breathe i don't know what any of that means but i could promise you that none of it is even remotely true and i i get like any good any good grass guy you always try to come up with an analogy of how to explain things and this is probably the worst case scenario of coming up with an analogy that i've heard in a really really long time <laughs> i promise if you're teaching a continuing education class and you pull out something like that um everyone's going to get out and walk out walk out uh, and then your local <laughs> department of agriculture is going to cancel your ass and then you'll be scratching your head like damn i fucked that one up didn't i <laughs> uh, the second thing I noticed was uh, it was that his aeration quality in and of itself was not good. Uh, that that is that, that I would not feel like a service provider doing that kind of aeration and 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 leaving a bill for it. Right, like 
if I if I build them How fifty bucks, then maybe I would be okay with that type of aeration. But I would never sell an aeration at fifty bucks, and I just wouldn't do one at that caliber. It's just not good. That is not that is not a good aeration. Um, okay, I I digress. Then the second thing is is that I don't know why he displayed a drop spreader and a broadcast spreader. I guess the the drop spreader was for the hell strip was his purpose of of showing that that you could be more precise with applications on the hell strip. I'm guessing. Um, but then, you know, touts the edge guard, which would, uh, bypass that, I guess, to an extent, if you are a wizard with an edge guard, then you, 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 you know how to do the hell strip with it. And, uh, sometimes you got to tilt it to one side and, uh, and do it in reverse, but you can actually get it done without getting it on the concrete. If, if you've got a little bit of experience and the, the other thing that stuck out to me too, is that said the lawn is probably a quarter of an acre. Um, a, a what? quarter of an acre, a 43,000 square foot. Can you go back to the backyard there, JP? Uh, an acre is 43,500 square feet just to, to, to play for fun. Um, is this 10,000 square foot of grass? I don't know. Very well could be because the camera plays all kinds of camera tricks, right? So it's hard to say, but that is one Matt, of those things. I don't think that so. You, you I don't, don't think so. I don't think I didn't either. I, I, I didn't <laughs> either. Maybe, maybe 6,000 square feet is what, what I was kind of envisioning. Uh, I'm thinking yeah. like five. <laughs> yeah. This is, lucky. this is not a big yard, right? And I'm being gracious no. at, at 6,000 square feet. <laughs> so if I'm going to do some quick math here, because I like actually putting legitimate values to this. So if we took 43,500 and divided it by, we'll say six, just to be gracious, that is not a quarter of an acre. Um, that is one seventh and a quarter of an acre. So um, uh, we, w it is imperative to have a pretty damn good idea of your turf area you're applying there and not just, well, I guess it's a quarter. And uh, so, you know, uh, uh, Michael Taylor says eight, eight, uh, eight feet between the fence posts. So we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So 56 feet by one, two, three, four, we'll say, we'll say seven by seven, 56 by, uh, by 56. So we're at 3000 square foot in the back. We'll call it 2000 in the front just for funsies. So yes, Ray, probably 5,100 square feet is what we're looking at. Five, there. about 5,000. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, um, then he said he wanted to shoot the Scott's bonus S into the flower beds and I'm going to get into the active ingredients of bonus S here in a minute. And, uh, and oh, uh, uh, that in and of itself is bad. Uh, you, you, you probably should not be doing that uh, to, to begin with, especially when you're applying a post-emergent weed control um, uh, with, with a, a weed and feed type product. And then to further demonstrate how much of a bad idea it was, we saw on the side of the house because it was exceptionally weedy. He said, fuck it. I'm going to fuck around and find out. And I'm going to take this guy's bonus ass and I'm going to make one pass down the edge. I'm going to make one pass along the side of the house into the flower bed. I'm going to make one pass in the middle and then I'm going to repeat it for a second time. And, uh, and based on the throwing pattern of that, it probably should have been one pass down the edge and one pass down the other. So, uh, you know, we could be somewhere in the three to four X rate category along just that side of the house. Now, why is that inherently bad? Well, Scott's bonus S used to be back in the day, uh, met Sulfuron methyl and, uh, due to a, uh, a multi-million dollar lawsuit that Scott's had to pay out there, they pulled out, uh, uh, the met Sulfuron methyl and put in atrazine because, you know, that one's a lot more fun than met Sulfuron methyl. Well, kinda not really. 
And uh, for those of you that have ever applied atrazine, uh, chances are you have probably fucked up something more than once. Uh, because uh, if you start applying it to things that are green, you're going to see negative consequences. The caveat to that is that you have some leeway with um, uh, some centipede grass and uh, some St. Augustine grass. And then depending on the time of year, you can get away with it on some on some zoysia too, right? So, um, uh, but it did, and I was really nervous when he did zoom in on this at one point, I think I identified this as centipede grass and then gauging by his Southern accent, I'd say he's in South Georgia. It's just my wild South ass Carolina. guess. South Carolina. Carolina. Okay. Area. Charleston area, definitely a centipede lawn there. So, you know, it, at least that now, I will say this is that atrazine is one of those ones, man, if I'm using it and I'm putting it in a video, um, and this is coming as someone as a, as a seasoned guy that's been around, I would fucking mark that up with every possible warning that look, do not apply this to your tall fescue. Do not apply this to your Bermuda grass unless you really, really really know what you're doing. So my warning is that just don't use it at all, period, unless you have centipede grass or or St. Augustine grass. And that would be the only time. And in fact, if it's coming in a pre-formulation like this bonus S right here, you shouldn't be using it anyway, period. Uh, because chances are, if you're having to opt to use this, you probably don't have the experience required to handle a product like atrazine, okay? Uh, just because the risk to reward ratio is probably not working out in your favor. Overall anxiety inducing, I'm going to say this is about a 9.2 out of 10. Uh, at one point, my like armpits were, were cold because of the, the rapid formation of sweat on it and the amount of oh, actual geez. respiration uh, that was, uh, or perspiration that was, that was occurring. And I guess I could call my, set my sweat respiration in this particular instance as it was evaporating rapidly off of uh, off my skin and actually making my armpits cold. Um, man, this guy needs a lot of fucking help, a lot of fucking help. And T tons. I don't, I, I don't know I an alternate where the beginning of this is because th this was done with such a high degree of confidence. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm guessing that this guy uh, is 80% so confident in what he was doing that he does not want help. Maybe I'm wrong, and I would love to be proven well, wrong on this, but that is just my... Well, this is my guess. Uh, uh, this is, uh, thing. Yeah. And I forgot about this picture right here where he's pouring it on the curve. Oh, Atrazine, <laughs> impregnated fertilizer. It's rough. rough. On, the, oh. on the... Really on the road. Let's be honest. From the side of the bag! What is that? Yeah. You cut a hole it's in the side of it, and you're just gonna no, side broken up, side go, pour go it. Go back to where it's at. Go back into the. Yeah, the it's in another bag. Trailer. Yeah, it's a it, it was in bag. a. It's ah, a broken bag, and and he, here's my thought on this guy. This guy does this all the time. Because Matt, I had a chance to watch this, uh, previously. Yeah, and. For for me, this rated ten out of ten on the cringe factor. And do you know why it rated ten out of ten on the cringe factor? This, <laughs> that, and then the three passes, you know, on the on the side of the house because it's tough. True story, true story, Matt. 
back in the 1990s, I had a job where I had to render about two or three acres of land dirt. And do you know how I, you know, how I got that done back in those was days? A- was atrazine a component of it? Okay. Five pounds atrazine 90 DF, quart of glyphosate, quart of 2,4-D, aloha weeds, and nothing grew there for the next year. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, uh, I'm trying to be tame. People are going to, people, I really, people am. Are, I, I can tell. I can tell that you're very reserved and have had this not been you know, for public consumption that it'd be far different. But here's the thing I want folks to understand is that, uh, it is a choice to approach your job with professionalism. It truly is. It, you can't use the, I ah, shucks. I didn't know. And, and I'll say this too, is we were all beginners. And the reason that we're sitting up here is because we've made tons of mistakes and because I'll be, I'll be dead honest. Right. And, and people have approached us about this and said this, man, you guys could be a little more gentle. You could be, you know, you could be this, you could be that. If I, if I write an email, if Matt tries to call somebody and leaves him a voicemail, if Ray sends a strongly worded letter in the mail, do you think it has any sort of effect whatsoever? And I'm not saying that because we're calling them out publicly because we move the needle or some shit. It's nothing to do with that. I'm just trying to get attention to this is something else that somebody else is probably going through some other growth stage that they're at in their business not just this guy but many other people and hopefully one person will watch this and be like "Ooh, i gotta stop doing that right there mm-hmm. and if that happens we've done our job so you know uh lawn barber listen dude you want to come on the show would love to have you if you don't ever see this well sorry uh but mm-hmm. i hope that the the point of this was one to point out that, man, there's a lot going on there and, and, and a lot that could be better. Number two, that professionalism is a choice and that it will be a slow process to get there and it will be filled with mistakes, but it will also be filled with you finding the right resources to get yourself better in a hurry, to get yourself better in a hurry. And finally, the last part was simply to just watch Matt sit there and fucking cook under the microscope for about six <sighs> minutes. And I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be nice. And You're red in the face right now. Why are we applying a 29010 to to 90% dormant centipede to begin with? It just at a at a at a at a bag yard kind of rate, right? I mean, that's to me I I like, know why. I know exa- oh, man. I know exactly oh, why because you you can buy it at a 5000 or 10000 square foot bag. I did not know that, by the way. That's yes, you funny. can. Mm. Yes, you can, Matt. And uh, here here's the thing is I when, guess that was a 10,000-square-foot bag since this is about a quarter of an acre yep. on a 5,000-square-foot I mean, yard that we were able to can, deduce mm-hmm. based on can the it, posts. Yeah. Can atrazine I mean, neutralize the, PFAS? In the no. In fact, here's the, here's the thing that's making me really cringe is that right now, atrazine, period, is in the crosshairs. Yes. Okay. Yes. Atrazine in atrazine in 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 and of itself. I mean, because for example, here in Hawaii, back in two thousand and five or two thousand and six, they found atrazine in groundwater. Guess what happened? It's no longer in Hawaii. Okay. And then nationally, 
they find atrazine in various waterways. And right now, atrazine is scapegoated regarding certain biological effects on various aquatic life forms, right? It's being scapegoated. So I don't know how much of this is true because for me, hey, if atrazine did that to the frogs, then, you know, all of those people for whom he wants to be a she, we could just give them an atrazine pill oh boy. and be done with it. Dump. Um, the, uh, but seriously, if, if you have a, a lawn business and, uh, and what you do looks like what we just watched, please send us an email, uh, go to the grassfactor.tv. There's a contact form there, contact us, and we will help you to no longer look like this. Right. And it's not the presentation of it. That was poor. The presentation of it looked fine, but to a trained eye yeah. and more importantly, more importantly, to your local state's Department of Agriculture, if they roll up on you doing this, you will be fired to a holy <laughs> fucking hell and back. And if you don't have the appropriate insurance, if you don't have the appropriate bond, that is going to fall on you personally. Your LLC be damned. They will come after you as the applicator, not your LLC. So uh, get ready because you're going to be shelling out some bucks and your, your, uh, your, your career path will be shuttled instantaneously towards, you know, out there in outer space, uh, which is not the good kind of outer space you want to be in. That's, it's not hockey stick growth. It's, it's downward. You might end up at the center of the inner, at the center of the universe on that one, uh, as a pile of molten goo. Uh, anyway, <laughs> again, reach out to us at grassfactor.tv, whether it's the lawn barber or anybody else that, that, you know, is concerned that they're operating this way and let us help you. Uh, because again, any, any mistake that you, you see out there, chances are we've done it. I can't say I've ever done this, but, um, I can at least recognize the, the, what's not supposed to happen here. Uh, gentlemen, let's check out this week's, uh, shit. Did we skip the burns? We did. We need to do the burns. <laughs> Whoops. Yes. Yeah, Sheila, I got real ahead of myself there. Uh I guess it was the prelude just warning me that it was coming. I don't know. Um, this is interesting, right? Uh, because it's not super common to see this in the headline. And it starts like this Bayer sues Missouri farmers. If anybody's read anything in the news lately, it is uh, so-and-so sues Bayer glyphosate. So-and-so <laughs> sues Bayer glyphosate dicamba. So-and-so sues Bayer. Uh, Bayer loses lawsuit. Uh, that is typically what dominates the headlines. But if you missed it, let me repeat that. Bayer sues for Missouri farmers for illegally spraying dicamba, saving and replanting seeds from the company's genetically engineered crops. Mm. Well, mm, if you caught the second piece of that, that is a giant no-no. Uh, ask Ooh, ask yes. Central America. Uh, Bear is suing four farmers, four, uh, farmer, four farmers in the boot heel of Missouri for illegally spraying older versions of dicamba on its genetically engineered soybeans, as well as doing so after the state's cutoff date for spraying the herbicide. 
The lawsuits filed in January in federal court in the Eastern District of Missouri alleged that the farmers are in violation of their user agreements with Bayer and have harmed the company's reputation with the EPA. Bayer alleges the farmers also saved seeds from Bayer's dicamba-tolerant crops and replanted them, a violation of their user agreement. During the course of the investigation into saving seeds, Bayer said it found evidence of farmers illegally spraying or older versions of dicamba, which are legal to buy but can't be used on the crops. The lawsuit also charges the farmers with patent infringement, breach of contract, uh, tortious uh, interference with business expectancies, and negligence. Critics say the lawsuits are an attempt by Bayer to blame the older version of the weed killer for damage caused by widespread legal use of dicamba on crops. Millions of acres of farmland and natural areas have been harmed by dicamba, by dicamba moving off where it was applied since genetically engineered dicamba-tolerant crops were introduced in 2015. Because of the damage, a federal court banned dicamba briefly in 2020, but the EPA reapproved dicamba with additional restrictions a month later. That approval is currently being challenged. Then they were saving seeds and illegally spraying uh, dicamba. Uh, so these four guys, Mark Hodel, uh, with four roughly 500 acres, uh, Greg Duffy, 1,000 to 1,600 acres, Caleb Duffy, uh, up to 700 acres, and Brian Arians of Arians Farms, who had 2,500 to 3,600 acres. Those are going to be some big-ass Smurfin lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just want to <laughs> put that out there is that, uh, look, you know, this is the situation Bayer's in, right? Monsanto has a reputation that if you save any of their genetically engineered seeds uh, or harvest any kind of genetically engineered seeds, you are absolutely food barred. And it has been a big, big to do in Central America. And that is really what got Monsanto in the news originally over this uh, this this most most recent thing. Um then uh if you then became the uh the uh the glyphosate thing, of course, right? Uh, Bayer purchased Monsanto for $63 billion, uh, and they set aside $16 billion for liability. Uh, already in Missouri, Judge has, has uh, assessed a $265 million in damages uh, when uh, a farmer sued for the, his peach farm uh, that had been uh, uh, dinged by dicamba. Then also a $400 million settlement, and then um, Texas grape growers are suing for a $560 million in damages. So there is monumental amounts of money that are coming out of Bayer's uh, legal fund here, and, uh, and it is not looking good. So uh, let me tell you, if you're playing with Bayer right now, you better play by the rules because they are bleeding cash, and they will come to fucking get it. Uh, but I don't think this should be any surprise that if you fuck around with Bayer and you think that they won't fuck around with you back, then you are so naive. It's amazing to me that you would even attempt it, to be honest. Um, it's one thing if you have a gallon or two laying around that ends up going out as part of your 250 gallon mix. Uh, but to be caught at this capacity at this scale, when we're talking about, you know, 6,000 acres, uh, uh, across which old chemistries and old seeds are being used, buddy, you might as well just bend over and, and show them your (sighs) rectum and just beg them to hammer it home. Because that is really what you're asking Whoa. to have done. Whoa. Whoa. Well, a lot. Uh, the other part of this, though, too, is that, you know, it talks a little bit about this in the article, but there's a lot of uh, chatter, if you will, about Bear doing a lot of this and, and policing this uh, at, a, at a very, very uh, psychopathic level almost, right? Where uh, they're trying to hedge and say, listen, it's not us and our technology, right? It's these farmers that are going rogue that are that are causing these issues, right, with that camera. So rather than let the government step in and say, oh, hey, like, 
clearly there's you know some malfeasance here and people are using stuff off label or not the way they should be in terms of you know some of the injury the off-target injury that we're seeing basically Bayer is stepping in and saying no we're going to do that for you and we're going to expose what's not right here because it's not us and you're not going to threaten basically our intellectual property which is the technology to spray dicamba resistant crops right so I guess it's a little bit of, you know, corporate protectionism, right, on their part. And it'll be interesting to see how much more of this, but, you know, how they caught wind of this. It'd be interesting to really dive into the lawsuit and mm -hmm. read it and try to figure out what is going on and, and how they're doing this. You know, basically, what are their, uh, you know, methods and means to collecting this information and, and monitoring it, right, uh, over Very the course simple. of, you know, a growing system. What's that? Very simple now, Ryan, because... Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with the dicamba formulation that is legal for application to dicamba tolerant crops. And it has a name, uh, it's called Engenia. That is the mm -hmm. product that is legal and labeled. However, I also know that for application to non-crop sites and pastures, you also have what's called four pound per gallon dimethylamine dicamba. And that is something that I've seen on the market for as low as $50 a gallon or less. Whereas the formulation that you're supposed to use is in the hundreds of dollars per gallon. And the difference is, is the amine salt used for the dicamba tolerant crops is an especially long chain amine that is supposedly less susceptible to volatility and drift. So what these guys basically did was they did the very thing that violated all the terms that enabled dicamba-tolerant crops and dicamba as a herbicide to even exist in the United States. So I do not blame Bayer's risk management team for going after these growers at all. And in fact, me personally, I would love to see actual product manufacturers take a more aggressive risk management stance regarding their various products. I welcome it. I mean, who would you rather have well, on your duts? Um, the, uh, the government or Bayer? I don't know. Uh, both of them are pretty frightening in, in my particular instance. And, I, uh, and I, again, I'm just a spray jockey from nowhere uh, that knows nothing. And let me tell you that I, it, it, Syngenta, Bayer, Monsanto, you mentioned any of those names? I am not going to fuck around and find out. I promise you <laughs> that. Not once, not ever. Uh, that's that. If there's ever a time to play by the book as squeaky clean as humanly possible, it's when you hear that kind of money out there uh, uh, guarding what is theirs. That's all. Oh, Lord have mercy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jack we McCoy just get a little a little <laughs> Jack McCoy. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> What's our uh, next yeah. fucking article here? Uh, where where am I? Uh, oh, oh, oh yeah. okay, here yeah, we yeah, go. Standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah tough a, one here. Oh boy. Yeah. OSHA news release a release uh, from Region Four. U.S. Department of Labor finds lawn service contractor ignored safety standards allowed workers to operate riding mowers dangerously at Fort Campbell. $198,000 in penalties for willful, serious violations by Pride Industries. A federal workplace safety inspection of a lawn service contractor's operations at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, has found the company ignored safety requirements to save time, including removing safety guards on industrial mowers. Fuck. U.S. Department of Labor's OSHA determined Pride Industries, a Roseville, California contractor employed at the base, willfully allowed workers to operate zero-turn radius motors without belt guards installed. What? OSHA inspectors Ooh, identified serious <laughs> violations as follows. Exposing uh, employees to potential lacerations and serious eye injuries by permitting workers to operate mowers with shoot guards in a tied-up position. <laughs> Putting workers at risk of crushing injuries or death in a rollover by allowing employees to operate zero-turn mowers on slopes steeper than 15 degrees. Been there, done that. Exposing employees to potential lacerations by allowing unsafe operations of a bench grinder. Uh, been there, done that. Allowing uh, workers to operate a tractor without a cover on the power takeoff or PTO shaft. Eh, been there, done that too. Uh, OSHA proposed $199,000 in penalties following its inspection on September 9th of 2022. Violations like these found in this inspection show the company's disregard for their workers' safety. Uh, Director William Cochran in Nashville, Tennessee. Their failure to follow established safety standards needlessly exposed workers to potentially dangerous and fatal hazards. Uh, 1966 Pride was established to provide employment for young adults with developmental disabilities. Oh no! Wait! Yikes! Oh yikes! No. Yikes! They've got no. I think really? it's, I think it's our mission. Hang on, I'm looking them up here real quick. Wow! Which is uh, good. I, I commend them for that. But look, if ever there's a time wow. to be a little tight on it is having your safety. belt guards. Having your yeah. belt guards on. Uh, and your being, shaft guards. Yeah, yeah. The, the PTO shaft guards, you know, I, the bench grinder thing, I can get. Uh, but if they're if they're removing their rollover bars and stuff like that, especially if they're going to be on steep slopes, like, I mean, you got to you gotta play by the rules a little bit better than that. Because I promise you, if they showed up and they just saw you fucking around on a bench grinder in an unsafe way, they're not going to freak the fuck out in the same they will with all of these going on, right? So, uh, man, not a good look. Yeah. Um, and you know what Absolutely. also yeah, is yeah. not the good look? Go the, the good look is the fact that this is happening and a lot of the employees are developmentally disabled. And what developmentally disabled means to me is these are like people with various stages of say down syndrome so they're intellectually challenged even so if you have an intellectually challenged person and you have them working on a mower that is inherently less safe and how many mower mishaps have we had on the burns, 
A lot. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot a of lot. them that we don't include that we have in our in our show notes, uh, like our show prep, yeah. where it's like so yeah. and so died on a mower, and we're just like, oh man, with enough dark shit as so we in, have on here, like we'll keep that one off. But if we did we'll every one, week, or, we could have a mower death, literally every yeah, week we or, could have one. It's true. Or else somebody somebody is maimed because the the shoot guard on the deck has been disabled and a stake or a rebar shot through that uh that mower deck like a missile i mean right oh I mean, yeah that, i'm just Fuck, thinking man yeah I mean, that's ugh, I mean, that, that just gives that, that just gives me the creeps to think that okay you have these people and they have their challenges and then you're going to add a degree of danger to what they're doing by disabling the safety features on the mower because you know what i see don't tie cards. the deck up yeah and, and you know they what i make see like, contraptions for that yeah they make the ocdc uh you know handles so you can you know move that that thing around as needed and you know what as far as the covers for like belts and gears and whatever you know what, Matt? I love those belt, those those covers and and guards. You know why? I've seen instances where a chain or a belt let go, and as a result of that belt or chain letting go, if that cover had not been in place, somebody could possibly be taking a piece of chain or belt right to their face because uh, it would shoot. <laughs> look as a person who who is an owner operator of a manufacturing facility let me tell you keep your fucking belt guards on because all it takes is one one and if you've ever seen a belt fly off at 17 1800 rpms it is not a good time at all mm -hmm. especially when you're mm -hmm. sitting on top of the damn thing <laughs> Shit. uh the next one here is uh, uh, Pennsylvania officials say turf recycler is violating environmental laws. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, turf recycler hit with an environmental violations as it works to open a Pennsylvania plant. In 2021, then-Governor Tom Wolf announced that a Danish artificial turf recycler would be opening its first U.S. processing center in PA, providing a destination for ever accumulating piles of discarded sports fields. Oh, what is a, 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 a turf recycler? Uh, no, we're talking about artificial turf. More than a year later, yes. the processing center still hasn't opened. In fact, an official of Rush Township, uh, Schoikel County, is that how to say that? Can I? Sure. You're, you're my, my PA resident here. Uh, does that work? Schoikel? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah, sure. Let's I go don't with either. that. Schoikel! Uh, where the plant, where the future plant is expected to operate, said the company hasn't it's yet racist. gotten the municipal approvals <laughs> needed for the government. <laughs> Meanwhile, the artificial turf <laughs> they one day hope to recycle has been waiting around stacked and sagging piles in Pennsylvania fields and parking lots. Wow. Uh, and the very same company that is in line to capture nearly $2 million in state incentives is also getting notices that it's violating the environmental laws. Oh, boy. Over the last few years, yeah. uh, the uh, PDEP, which we were talking about Florida's earlier, now we're at the uh, the PDEP, has identified infractions at three separate sites where rematch was storing the turf. 
Depp officials haven't yet imposed any fines on rematch for the violations and are working with the company on a plan to relocate the material for the location of its future processing center. Uh, anyway, it goes on to, to talk about the challenges of dealing with this and why it's a particular issue. Uh, because, well, it turns out those two are also full of harmful chemicals. It's just, <laughs> you can't get away of it. And, uh, and so open air storing it in fields and stuff is probably not the ideal thing to do. And if you go down and you look at pictures of it, you just see stacks and stacks of it that look like hay bales, but guess what? There's stacks and stacks of harmful chemicals instead of hay bales. So, uh, you know, by the way, cue up the PFAS speech because this actually contains probably a metric shitload of PFAS too. And why <laughs> it is inherently a bad idea to be stacking this up like they are. Yeah. Good job, boys. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of this that's prevalent right now. Um, you have some companies that are that are trying to get on the recycling train and 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 do this. And some of the larger manufacturers have started where they're taking uh, old uh, synthetic turf and grinding it up to make it into you know uh, the shock absorbent pad that goes underneath some fields or playgrounds, things like that. Uh, and using it for some other stuff too, but I, there, there's no way. And I, I, this is completely anecdotal. I don't have any evidence to back this up. I'm just going to say that there's absolutely no way that the uh, capacity of any recycling system combined, right, within the country, is set up to produce at scale uh, what's coming in in terms of waste in a given year right now. Like it's just it's not possible. Uh, so. I think the question is, is that, you know, you still have uh, a number of, of, of situations like this where it's just sent to a landfill and that's, that is what it is. And is that the best thing? So I don't know, Ray, uh, I'm not sure what that would do for your property value, but uh, it probably, probably wouldn't help. <laughs> no, it, it, it wouldn't help at all. And yet at the same time, here locally, almost every new athletic area is going to artificial turf by default it's just artificial turf and the thing is is that you raise a good question because we don't even have enough landfill space on in this state <laughs> yeah we haven't even got, we haven't even got enough landfill space so my question is is with all of this zeal for putting in artificial turf, what is going to happen at the end of that turf's life? Because I know in the case of something like Bermuda grass, I would have a dispose of in-site plan that involves no removal of material and reestablishment of new turf. Yeah, I, but for artificial, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that with artificial. You're, no, <laughs> you're not seeing that. You're you're not seeing it anywhere, and it's unfortunate. And I, I wouldn't say anywhere. There are there are places that it, again, it's become more prevalent, and it, it is a viable option in some of those cases. But there is definitely again a, a ceiling to that that's uh, very very low right now. So take this with a grain of salt. But it's funny though that you know there's there's incentives given to these companies to go out and you know, be part of the solution, everything like that. 
And, you know, for the time being, they're just like, you know what? We'll stack this up back here out, you know, in the back 40 and, <laughs> until we can until we can get this going. You know what I mean? It's like the uh, the uh, pile of uh, dried up cum filled tissues under your bed when you're 12, 13 years old. Right. It's Not a problem until mom finds it. In this case, mom is the Pennsylvania State Department of uh, uh, Environmental Protection. Environmental Department. So, yeah. yeah. There we go. Uh, let's check out this week's returns. Sorry, mom. Love you. Love you too, Yes, I am. Uh, I'm going to start this off by saying, and I'm I'm going to hold the 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 visual that went on with this. So, um, I I I I work in weird conditions sometimes, and I I end up getting injuries. And uh, one of them was that I had uh, an infected pinky toe the, the the other week. I can't remember what I hit my toe on, but I hit it on something, and uh, and it bled a little bit, and then it got infected. And um, uh, I was at Home Depot and. It, I could not walk well, and I was like, you know what? Let's just go ahead and get rowdy. And I took a razor blade and I and I cut it and then and then drained it. Right. It, since then, it's been been well. Well, I was uh, I was picking the toenail on my uh, on my pinky toe, and this is disgusting. While I was watching the Joe Knows Turf segment, and I have successfully removed the entire pinky toenail. Um, it is it is completely gone, and I'm 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 looking at it right here, and it's. Anyway, if you were wondering the anxiety <laughs> level that I hit, I ripped off the entirety, and I'll I'll save it until after the show and show, uh, show our, <laughs> our patrons. But I am it is my literal entire pinky toe nail is is now off my foot, and uh, I guess I am now a lesser man for it. Uh, to the returns, that's weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> the. Uh, uh, where are we? While the glory days may be, be behind us, there is still a viable path to ensure universities are producing the next generation of superintendents. In Jared Diamond's collapse, how societies choose to fail or succeed, the author examines ancient civilizations that flourished and then died out. The pattern that he observed was that ancient civilizations collapsed within about 10 years of reaching the peak of their economic and social power. The same pattern is eerily familiar to those of us who have been in the turfgrass research and education field long enough to have a gray hair. Uh, as a graduate student in turfgrass science at the University of Illinois, my advisors, Al Sargent and Dave Weiner, uh, worked closely with the golf course superintendents and other turf managers to raise money for research support through golf days, trade shows, and other events. Superintendents and others in the turf industry, including side producers, landscapers, athletic field managers, contribute to the cause. Other agriculture groups, i.e. corn and soybean farmers, didn't appear to dig into their own pockets to support research. State supportive agriculture programs largely funded these operations. After graduate school, went to Michigan State, where I met Gordon LaFontaine at the Michigan Turfgrass Foundation, which raised money to support turf research. LaFontaine was an exceptional businessman and fundraiser. MSU's turf program was and is generously supported by the annual fundraising the MTF's, and uh, the MTF's significant endowment. When I returned to the University of Illinois in 95, the Illinois Turfgrass Foundation provided similar support that funded research, also supporting work at Southern Illinois University, which then had a turf program. From approximately 90 to 2007 golf course construction boom, students came uh, to large land-grant universities like Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State, Purdue, Iowa, uh, uh, Iowa State, North Carolina State, and others in record numbers. New turf faculty were hired, funding was flush, and the industry showed exceptional growth. From my viewpoint, the peak arrived in the early 2000s when turf majors at Iowa State reached a high of 143. However, with the Great Recession of 08, 
Everything went belly up, including enrollments in TERF programs, where we've seen decline across the country. Iowa State's enrollment is now around 35 students. Even bigger drops have occurred at other land-grant universities. When enrollment at Illinois dropped to near zero in 2014, my department dropped our turf crash course offerings, effectively shuttering the program. The University of Arizona ended their turf program in 2015. University of Kentucky paused in theirs around the same time. A multi-decade decline in state funding has also affected turf crash programs at land-grant universities. State support has flipped completely from 40 years ago, with 85 to 90% of our budget coming from tuition and other revenues, and only about 10% from the state. Once a truly public once truly public universities have become semi-private schools with budget decisions driven by tuition and research dollars. At the University of Illinois, tuition and fees have gone from $1,074 and 82 to over 18 grand a year in 2020. They're on housing, meals, books, and you're up to 30,000 a year. That's like University of Tennessee or University of Georgia too. Where will future superintendents and other turf professionals be trained? Uh, as faculty with a turf grass emphasis retire, they are not replaced. In the early 2000s, University of Illinois had five faculty focused on turf grass research and education. Today, it's one, soon to be none. On our campus, the rule of thumb is each faculty member should be supported by 30 undergraduates. By that metric, two to three turf faculty would require 60 to 90 undergraduate turf majors. But where do we go from here? Well, well, because of declining state funding, universities recruit more out-of-state and international students to generate tuition dollars and increase student quality by drawing from a larger pool of applicants. Uh, as an educator, I believe in the value of a four-year degree. I've also encountered many excellent superintendents who graduated from two-year degree programs. These programs offer good value since they are half as long and generally offer lower tuition. However, I've also noticed that many of our four-year turf program graduates start in the golf course industry but later go into other related careers. A four-year degree helps students easily more easily pursue advanced degrees that allow them professionally flexible. Many superintendents also work at private clubs where a four-year degree may improve their perceived level of professionalism to members. How can we make the degree process more affordable? First, I would encourage interested students to attend community college to take care of general education requirements with the intent of transferring to a four-year university. Two years at community college can satisfy math, general sciences, and humanity courses required by most schools. Another alternative is a short course pro program such as those at Michigan State Penn State, I know, has been working on that for a while. Um, NC State and University of Massachusetts. These programs vary in length from 10 weeks to two years and offer students exposure to world-class faculty and facilities. Online programs are another one. Finally, cultivating more state and national scholarship programs for students who complete a two-year degree would be ideal. Substantial scholarships of five to 10 grand would attract students to careers in turf management and encourage them to complete a specialized program. By making a dent in rising tuition expenses, universities can keep cultivating a diverse student body and talent pool. Then it goes on to research and putting it all together, and it's and it's it's a lot, right? So there's a lot, um, yeah, yeah. And Demay, I know you, this holds near and dear to your heart, and I think you know I I try to play devil's advocate in this in the standpoint that um, uh, I do believe 100 percent that education is uh, important. However, with the advent and acceleration of the internet, the beautiful thing about it, uh, for me at least, is that. Uh, I can learn the kinds of things I want to learn at the speed at which I want to learn them online, which is typically uh, 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 at, at hyper speed compared to what it would be in the classroom with more attention uh, applied to the details that are actually uh, actionable and uh, uh, with, a, with, a, with a higher degree of correlation of what I need out of the the information that I gather. And I know um, with with the strength of Ohio Turfgrass Foundation and Ohio State still having just one of the absolute most elite uh, 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 programs in the country, I think you offer the, the, the balance to what my take on it is. And so 
I want you to speak a little bit more about this, like with the decline and uh, with with hope of what's coming up in the future. <laughs> Whew. Wow. It's a lot to put on the shoulders. Um, it is. I, <laughs> I agree with you. I mean, I it just to, as a, from a personal standpoint is uh, I love education, but I've always hated school. That, that's that's a fact. I love learning. I love education, but I I did not particularly care for school um, at any part. But it, it was a vehicle, and it was that for uh, for me. But it's not. I also saw many of my fellow students, you know, going through uh, first the two year program at Ohio State, and then the four year program later on at Ohio State. That you know, I could tell it wasn't for them, right? And then teaching, you know, and and doing that you see kind of the same thing. It's this, it's the same uh, song and dance that, you know, there are people that are cut out to be there and, and that that is the best thing for them, the best path for them to learn. And then you see other folks that maybe they're not ready yet for that kind of uh, learning, tra- you know, knowledge transfer and that sort of thing, right? And uh, I just think that it's got to become more individualistic. And I think that's where the internet has helped. I agree with that 100%. So, there's two pieces. There's the there's the enrollment piece, right? Of you know, colleges need students to support uh, professors who end up also doing research and extension and other things that help us out do our jobs better, right? And if we don't have those students, then we're kind of screwed. So there still needs to be that pipeline. There still needs to be that effort, that conscious effort to get people that are college material, so to speak, into these programs, whether they're two year programs or four year programs um at at these large institutions and the ones that have continued to invest into turf grass like university of tennessee like ohio state uh michigan state and and others right a lot of the land grants have done a really good job with that uh there is a ton uh, uh there are a ton of folks though that that would be that do well in this industry that don't have a college education in it and i think there's got to be a way a bridge built to getting those folks the education that they need because you know, simply just getting, we, we all know, and we would all agree a, a thousand percent that just going and getting your license, uh, you know, passing that test and then being thrown out there into the world is a far cry from being a, uh, a well-trained and seasoned professional on, and yeah. somebody that knows how to handle situations. And I think that's the, that's the delineation, you know, we, we've talked about, um, uh, you know, labels and things like that of amateur DIY or whatever, but a professional is somebody who sees you know multiple ways if there are multiple ways of how to how to handle a situation and also understands what failure looks like if they don't or if they do or or some you know measure between those okay so that all being said is uh man it's gonna be a tough road to hoe i think with with the enrollment piece i think one of the things that uh we see more and more you know we hear a lot about oh kids don't want to work these days this that and the other thing i think the more bad mouthing that we do in this industry and I'll be the first one to say that it's, it, it is a great industry. It can provide a, a wonderful lifestyle. It can provide um, an embarrassment of riches, you know, not just money, but but a variety of other things, right? If you're passionate about, you know, working with your hands and doing stuff outside and seeing, you know, the pride, uh, you know, of doing a good job and seeing something through to completion, uh, there's a lot to be said to that. The parents, though, I would say of younger kids, the parents uh, are, are, are tough to get them to buy in. Uh, they see it as, you know, what Matt said before, you're a lawn jockey, you're a grass chanter, you're this, you're that, you're a ditch digger. It it doesn't compute with them that there are guys that drive 15 year old trucks 
you know, uh, pulling what looks to be, you know, half-assed equipment that are making, you know, in the mid six figures, no problem every single year. Right. And everything in between, you know, to the most polished brand new trucks that, you know, are making more or less or anything like that. So, um, land of opportunity there. They're talking a lot more about golf course folks here, which they have, you know, a very clear path right now to earning a shit ton of money. We'll see. The part that really breaks, right. The part that really breaks my heart is the research part because it is so vastly underfunded and it is so fucked up right now in terms of the way that it is approached by universities. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, you know, if, if you were to give a million dollars to any land grant university right now, would you like to take a guess at how much the university will take as overhead out of that before those funds can be used for research? Take a guess on what the average would be. I have no idea. I, I want to see percentage of those 70, funds? 75 to 80 percent. Most most land grant most land grant universities are going to be somewhere between forty five and sixty five percent, right off the top. Well, I'm so, I'm just speaking in terms of what I've actually seen as far as how funds get divvied up, and oh, most of the money, unfortunately, goes to the bureaucrats. Well, and so I think that's okay. the bottom line, though, folks, is that with research. We've got to find a better way to support. And I think with that, it becomes, you know, engaging with these folks more often, right? So if you are listening to us and I don't care what stage you're in, and if you're not sure of who the right people are to talk to, reach out to us and we'll connect you with them, but build those relationships, build them so that you can connect with people that they might have to send you out for an internship, which is few and far between, much more different than what you see with this chart of what the enrollments were like 20 years ago. But you never know, you build those bridges that can come back to you. Research ideas, extension ideas, call somebody for help, having another voice, another you know, resource that's close by that understands and talks to people in those states. That is the way that you're going to start being able to do this. And the last thing I'll say is this, is that there's a lot of people that have made a fuck ton of money in this business, right? And scholarships are important. Don't get me wrong. But I think the research component is the one that's more underfunded at this point. And if there's anything that you're going to give your money back to that's going to help you do your job better, be more profitable, it is research. So... That's that's uh, a little, little foreshadowing on some of the stuff that uh, you know the boys here and us we we might get into here. Not that we're going to do any research, but uh, raising money to support some of that stuff I think is important uh, as we try to be part of the solution and not uh, bitching about the problems. So we'll see, boys. But uh, man, near and dear to my heart, this industry does it, it, it was built by people that uh, thought the same way, acted the same way, acted accordingly. And uh, I hope that we can do the same so that some other whippersnapper can get up here in 20 years and, you know, tell us what a bad job <laughs> we did. And, and it, you know, it's, I just want to comment on this is that, it, you know, we, you, you will hear and you'll especially hear me say that people don't want to uh, work anymore. And I, I say it very loudly. Uh, I think there's been a, a, you know, Gen X is like uh, the toughest of sorts of generations that I see. And then, it, you know, you move into the millennials and then, and then beyond and it's, it's, it's on a, downward decline but i'll say this too is that with with it with the with with ease of life i think you, you know what we see is a, a more and more existential crises that are occurring amongst our youth and just general angst right and uh and the one thing that i can say about this industry is that anybody that's suffering from angst depression any sort of mental illness spectrum is that the the wonderful thing about um about this industry is that it, it provides 
uh, a, a source to rectify that in multiple fronts. One, the exposure to the sun is going to be inherently good. Uh, hands in the soil is inherently good. Uh, and, and both of those two things have been proven to be statistically more effective than antidepressants uh, alone. Uh, and then you add the other component, the physical component of this work, and, uh, and then the, the, the real-time feedback on the fruits of your labor, right? I mean, that is a, that is a, quad, a quadrifecta of, uh, of, of stimuli there, a quadfecta, trifecta, that's a quadfecta of, uh, of, of positives fist, that, that can help in that. Now, if, you know, if you, if you think that means you're going to be able to, to take just a, a junkie who's turning towards um, um, uh, rock bottom and be able to flip them around in a week, that's not what I'm saying. But what I, what I am saying is that if you can be a bit riskier with the types of people you bring into this industry, because once they get that taste, it's funny. I can't tell you how many people I know oh, okay. on the, on the Furton's court side of this business that substituted one addiction for another. And then grass became their addiction. And they, they, they built unbelievable uh, careers for themselves. Like you would not believe. And I mean, 100% turn their life around. And, uh, and I, and I think a lot of it is that dual diagnosis aspect of them, you know, treating one piece of whatever's going on, you, you know, neurodivergently, uh, with, with, uh, what previously was either drugs or alcohol or whatever it is they did. And then this gave them something, uh, as a, 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 a an extreme positive, um, and, and that actually combats it in a multiple in a multitude of different ways and, and ends up turning people's lives around. So, you know, I just want to put that piece out I, there too. For I can attest that to that, those. Matt. I can totally attest to that because, sure. you know, 25 years ago, I decided that, you know what? I'm going to have a hard time mowing, trimming, or treating if I'm always so fucked up drunk from the day before, mm. serious, this is real talk is, yeah, I, I decided, Hey, I cannot be constantly shit bagged. And so conscious decision was made. Hey, you know what? I'm going to get on the wagon, stay on the wagon and then proceed to manage turf grass and landscapes with a high level of precision and you know and that's that's my life path <laughs> essentially i don't think i would have that kind of motivation to change if i were doing some other kind of work in fact i could imagine myself not being around if i were in some other kind of work because i wouldn't have a reason to get my shit together. Well, and I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's, <laughs> if it has anything to do with it. I, I do think that the, there's that connection, right. Of mm -hmm. like, you really can't take a day off, you know? And I don't no, mean no, that you like, cannot necessarily physically or mentally, but one of both, right. You've got to be locked in you gotta, on this. You got to be there. Yeah. You, you know, and you also have to be physically present and, not impaired i mean like uh you cannot be this is not like sitting in your cubicle with the alka-seltzer asking yourself 
oh, why the fuck did I do that last night? <laughs> you know, th- th- this is not one of those kind of jobs. It's like, you got to keep your shit together. I've done no, that, and that's not fun. Yeah. Not, yeah. Just dumping and, some and more so- of that Mancozeb at 14 pounds per gallon into your backpack <laughs> sprayer and churning that shit up. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe use a little uh, stomach acid and vomit as your uh, tank buffer. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, as as much see, anxiety as I carry around that that I show on the on the air, if you could imagine what actually goes on in my head in real life, I promise you, it's exponentially worse. Worse, and uh, and having something that keeps me insanely stimulated at all times is necessary for my my personal health. And uh, and you know that's the beautiful thing about about this industry is that it keeps me grossly. Um, uh, stimulated at all times. And I, I always said that the day I'd be done with this industry would be the day that I didn't learn anything new. And I, even though I'm on the manufacturing side of it right now, there's still not a day that goes by that I don't learn something new. And, uh, and it gives me fodder and reason to continue charging on at the rate I do. All right, we're going to get out of here. We're going to turn this over to our patrons and let them choose the title of this week's episode. We love y'all. We'll see you on Thursday. Oh, wait, wait. We had a mailbag. We had a mailbag. This is the one we were supposed to get to. Uh, We've got several in the mailbag. We're going to get to some of these on Thursday, but the one I did want to get to was Tyler K, who had a a weed ID question here. And he sent us a general overview picture of the lawn, a close-up, and then when it's in its peak, and he wanted to know, uh, what is this weed I'm looking at or what he considers to be a, a, a weed? And he's wondering if it's bluegrass because he treated the lawn with fusillade too and it checked out brown for a month. And then he's wondering, is it a Kentucky bluegrass or is it a rough bluegrass? And, uh, and so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there that uh, JPEG, if, if you don't mind, throw up the, uh, the identification of the boat-shaped tip leaf there um, is the easiest way to identify that as Kentucky bluegrass. This is not a close-up enough picture for us to be able to make that determination. But if you see that, then you know. Then the second thing I'll tell you is that due to the darkness of this grass in these patches that you're looking at, I would bet a dime to a dozen that is not rough stock bluegrass. That is just a different variety of bluegrass that you're looking at. And that could be bluegrass in a tall fescue lawn, for instance. And a lot of times you'll see these seed blends that are 80% tall fescue, 20% Kentucky bluegrass. And this is the type of patterning that ends up happening over the years as it begins to establish, right? And so to me, I would say that this is Kentucky bluegrass in the midst of whatever seed blend had been applied as an overseed project. And it's just begin to patch out little by little until it's reached these types of patches. And so while it used to be a homogenized blend, now uh, survival of the fittest and Darwinism has taken over. And that's where you're starting to see these patches begin to grow and accumulate in certain areas and then other areas they're not. So uh, that would be my best guess. Do you all have anything different? No, I, I agree that's 100% it, that. Go ahead. That's what it looks right. like. Yeah. That's what it looks right. like to me, too, is that you've got what's most likely Kentucky bluegrass. And this goes back to my caveat or warning to anybody that is contemplating fooling around with the flazaflop application within their supposedly turf type tall fescue lawn. And that caveat is. If you have Kentucky bluegrass or ryegrass mixed in with that seed and then you apply the label rate of Flazifop to that area, your Kentucky blue and your ryegrass will dramatically check out. It's going to get found. 
All right. Now we're out of here. Love y'all. See y'all on Thursday. Bye. <laughs> Bye.